Uh, that singing's hard to follow. Here we are thinking just so intently about our Lord in song. It's not just the music, it's not just the voices, it is the message. It is the focus on our God that makes it so sweet. And we get to do that for a few more minutes together as we continue our study in the Minor Prophets. Turn with me, please, to the book of Obadiah. Good luck finding it. (laughs) And maybe one of the hardest books in the Bible to find. If you want to use the Bible that's provided for you in the seat rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 772. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. But as the series, our mighty God from the Minor Prophets, so also I would say that we'll see our mighty God in this minuscule book. Only 21 verses. But the picture is indeed a powerful one. We will, of course, eventually read all of the verses that are here. But let me just read the first two to you to orient you to the text. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. If I had to sum up the book of Obadiah with a popular song from our own time and culture, hands down, I would pick Bad Blood, by Taylor Swift. I hear you. Now, while many of you may not know the song or its lyrics, it sticks with many on account of its droning repetitiveness and its easily identifiable theme. As all popular songs do, they resonate with something within you. That's what makes them popular. Swift's particular complaint in this song is basically being stabbed in the back something that we all know well. And if you're a young person here today and you do not know that feeling yet, I warn you, you soon will. That pain that comes not just from someone speaking poorly, but from someone speaking poorly of you that was your friend, your ally, your lover. Some of the words that she uses that I find are particularly interesting. She talks about this stabbing of the back, making a deep cut. She speaks of wounds that last and last. I particularly like this one. Band-aids don't fix bullet holes. You say sorry just for show and you live like that, but it never fixes it. Band-aids not fixing holes in the soul. We're talking about that that inevitable pain that comes from those that we love the most having betrayed us. Uh, Have you ever felt that? Do you know that? Have you experienced that? When we think of this individually, it can automatically resonate within our own souls because we know that ill treatment at the hands of others is a fact of life. It is inevitable. I mean, it just, we cannot avoid it. And there's nothing quite like it. And so Obadiah here speaks of bad blood. He speaks of not just an individual, but a nation who was stabbed in the back by those whom they thought would come to their aid in a time of need. What I want you to understand about the book of Obadiah is it is about corporate betrayal. If you know the feeling of individual betrayal... I want you now to expand that out to part of a group. As the body of Christ corporately, we do well to remember that this type of treatment toward us is the way in which the world turns. You will not 
or you cannot expect uh, the best of treatment for those who do not belong to the same group as you. Jesus promised a, a sword, not peace, for those who would follow him. Uh, uh, it was Paul himself who said that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. They will suffer opposition. They will know bad blood. It is an international reality already. I mean, if you just think of what's going on in the 1040 window this morning, People were literally being slaughtered for their faith. And in some countries that hold to Sharia law, it is following a due legal process. And nevertheless, there are people who will be beheaded for their allegiance to Christ. The crazy thing is that the Christian in question only desires the person's eternal well-being and good. I mean, the flag under which we fly is Christ's love. We want to see others enjoy Jesus forever. It isn't just that we're trying to overcome the world system and set up our own political party and and make everybody do things the way that we want them. The the, the heart of the Christian is for the good of those around them, and yet it is returned with malice and with spite, not only in the 1040 window, but just think of the one billion people that are represented in the country of China. All vestiges of Western influence, especially Christianity, have been actively rooted up for the last 20 years. It is the government-sponsored suppression of Christian truth. There is this illusion, by the way, of a Christian movement in China called uh, the Three Self Church. And while there may be some true believers in it, that church entity is owned by the government. You are not allowed in a three-self church to mention anything political. So the minor prophets are off. You're not allowed to preach them. The book of Revelation's off. You're not allowed to preach them. Uh, The Chinese government is afraid of anything that would undermine its own influence. So we're talking about billions of people who are constantly uh, being mistreated by the world around them when they only intend good. And then we zoom in to our own day and our own time and our own location and place. And for the first time ever, being a Christian in the United States is more of a liability than an asset. It is now a social negative to be a Christian. I found the stats from... Uh, Our own brother, David Mitzemacher's sermon several months ago, not the one you just preached, but the one you did a few months ago to be uh, immensely illuminating to our current world condition. Uh, He had found several articles that pointed to the fact that in the last 2,000 years, there have been 70 million Christian martyrs. And over half of those, listen to this, over half of those came from the last century. In the last 30 years, sociologists have revealed that those who have the most negative views toward Christianity have grown in power in the economic, political, entertainment, and academic realms. If you want to be popular in this world, in our day, it needs to be apart from any association with Christianity. And one thing that's actually made more press uh, recently has been Uh, the rise of what I'll call cultural Marxism. When you folks who listen to like talk radio hear discussions about things like uh, critical race theory, which I've mentioned at times in the past, uh, it is actually, you may not be aware of this, uh, but that theory itself has been designed to undermine Christian influence. Basically, the way cultural Marxism works is it assumes right now that in the United States, heteronormous Christian individuals are the ones who are in power, and they need to be undermined because we need to balance the power. And the way that they go about undermining the power is to attack the sexual ethic of Christianity, its foundations, and actually uh, advocating for a family with a mom and a dad and kids, and then also to attack the exclusivistic teaching of Christianity in the fact, insofar as we believe in absolute truth as opposed to relative truth. So when these debates are going on in these public schools, 
this isn't just some theoretical thing. I want you to know that at its heart, it is an attack upon that which you believe. The point is, friends, there is bad blood between those who belong to Christ and those who don't. I know it's friendly, and I know people will pat you on the back, and I know that it seems nice at times, but friends, what is true in other places will eventually be true here. We've got a problem. And Obadiah, in particular, is written to encourage those who have experienced the pain that comes from being on the wrong end of social oppression. When you find yourself marginalized or mistreated on account of your identification with Christ, you need the book of Obadiah. It was actually written to a group of people who suffered more for their identification with God than you or I probably ever will in our own generation. Basically, what had happened as we look at this text more carefully is that the year is probably about 586 or 585 B.C. This was when Jerusalem had fallen to the Babylonians. This foreign superpower came in and they wrecked uh, the capital city. It was under siege for a while, and then they finally, the walls fell, people were murdered, uh, I mean, exiles were taken out, some people tried to flee, and what's interesting is that the book of Obadiah doesn't write about the Babylonians, he's not addressing them, he addresses this other nation that you may not be as familiar with, the nation of Edom, and Edom was the traditional uh, brothers, politically, of the nation of Israel. Do you remember that story back in the book of Genesis? We were preaching it a while back. Jacob and Esau and that tension that took place as Esau in just a moment uh, of just not thinking uh, sold his birthright to his brother Jacob, which meant that all the blessing now and all of the privilege would go toward Jacob, whose name would eventually be Israel. And then there would be this permanent bitterness from Esau himself, and his name would eventually be changed to Edom. These two brothers of a country uh, would ultimately be at each other's throats for hundreds of years, but things crossed the line in 586 BC when Babylon actually sweeps into Jerusalem, ransacks the city, and as the Jews are fleeing For protection, the Edomites are picking them off. They swoop in like vultures, kidnapping some of the people and selling them to Babylon, executing others. You talk about bad blood. I mean, Israel has been humiliated and they have been mistreated at the hands of those who are closest to them. And Obadiah here speaks And he speaks a word of denunciation against any who would mistreat God's people. And he does it not for necessarily the benefit of the Edomites. You'll find out there's no hope for them. He does it for the encouragement of the mistreated people of God. He wants them to be assured that God will right the wrongs that come to them. And so this text in particular shows God's denunciation of any bad blood against his people. And I want us to see this through three lenses. One book, only 21 verses, and it could be broken down into these three sections. One is the lens of punishment. You're going to see that in verses 1 through 9. Then you'll see the lens of the particulars. Uh, What is it that in particular that he was so upset about? Verses 10 through 14 And then the lens of prescription in verses 15 to 21. How will God fix this mistreatment of his people? Punishment, particulars, prescription. Look at verses 1 through 9 again to get the punishment. If you want to find out how much God cares about the mistreatment of his people, just read the first few verses of Obadiah. He says, first off, that we just read this, that God, the Lord God, Yahweh God, verse 1, is speaking concerning Edom, and he is opening up with this call for battle against them. 
And this is what God says he will do to them in this battle. I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now I want to pause here and note something. There is an opening denunciation of pride, but I want to be very clear. God is actually not most upset about their pride. He is telling them, I'm going to pour out judgment on you because of how you've treated my people. But don't let your pride deceive you into thinking that you somehow will escape my judgment. From a um, political standpoint, a geopolitical standpoint, I think we could easily say that Edom enjoyed some special advantages that could lead them to be a little prideful. I mean, where they were on the map, if you will, was kind of like the southeastern part of where Israel would have been, southeast of the Dead Sea. And it was a pretty mountainous area, anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 feet above sea level. In fact, that's why it keeps talking about Edom as Mount Seir, or sometimes it'll talk about the hills of Edom. Uh, They had the high ground. And you know, just like in real estate, the same is true in battle. Location, location, location. It's all about where you are. So not only did they enjoy the high ground, but they had capitalized upon that by building fortresses into these mountain dwellings. In fact, one of the study Bibles that we sell on the back wall, there's an awesome picture of the ancient fortress of Petra. You could look it up sometime on Google, which shows this narrow mountain pass and then a fortification behind it. I mean, there's just no way you're going to take down uh, this particular country. If they were to run down to Jerusalem, ransack them, and then run back up to their little hideout, I mean, they basically had the advantage. They thought that they were going to be able to get away with it. And so you see this denunciation. He says, look, there is no way you will be able to escape my judgment. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. I made these rocks, basically. There's no way that you're going to be able to escape my judgment. I love the the, the analogy in verse 4. He says, though you soar aloft like the eagle, Though your nest is set among the stars, though you have the high ground, he says, there I will bring you down, says the Lord. There's no escaping this. And now I want you to notice the thoroughness of the punishment. Even though he says, your pride will not protect you, notice what's going to happen. This is what God's going to do, despite their fortifications. Verse 5, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Do you get the analogy here? He's saying, hey, here's what happens when somebody breaks into your house. They leave some stuff. I remember growing up, our house was broken into at least two different times. It is a horrible feeling, that violation, knowing that like all your stuff has been rifled through, and then some of the things that you really treasured being gone. But having experienced that twice, I just want to go ahead and tell you, they never stole everything. There was always a bunch of junk left. What he is saying here is that, hey, you know, when somebody goes and they break into your house, like if you're going to experience that type of hardship, at least they leave something. God is saying, I'm not going to leave anything. He gives another analogy of of grape harvesters. Grape harvesters in the ancient world would go through and they pick the grapes. And as you would naturally expect, when they pass through, they don't pick everything because not everything's ripe. And also because of Levitical laws, they were supposed to leave some of the grapes for some of the poorer people. And so it was just naturally expected. They just got basically the low-hanging fruit. They got some of the big stuff. And here he's saying, though you would normally expect that of great pickers, he says, when I come and I pick you, there won't be anything left. That's why he interjects and says, the destruction will be thorough. I will totally remove all advantages from you. You will suffer. Look at verses 7 to 9. He says, all your allies... 
have driven to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and the understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. He's saying, look, even if you had rich capital relationships, I mean, they had obviously partnered with Babylon, one of the most powerful countries in the world, and he said, even they will turn against you. The people that you've entered into covenant with, they will stab you in the back. You have betrayed Israel, you will be betrayed. And the picture's graphic because it says even your wise men and even your strong men won't be able to help you. You take your best military strategist, you take your mightiest soldiers, and this is what's going to happen in the end, verse 9. The mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, uh, one of the key cities in Edom, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. When you hear the word slaughter, what do you think of? It's pretty grotesque, whatever it is. God says the devastation will be thorough. And from this, I think we learn a couple of things in particular. The main lesson here is that God hates with a passion those who are so prideful that they would actually set themselves up against God's people. He hates it. After all, it is pride. It is pride that would lead us ultimately to see ourselves as as better than God and His group and His family. I think two more lessons here. One is that pride is deceptive. When you look at verse 3, notice how he says, the pride or the presumption of your heart has deceived you. Friends, you may not even be aware of it this morning, but pride is the most dangerous sin on the books because... You never know that you're prideful. (laughs) I mean, really, how many prideful people have you met who say, hey, you know, I'm really struggling with pride? By the very virtue of the fact that they're conceding pride, they're showing that they're not as prideful as they think. But the first time that you do try to confront someone who is truly prideful, what do they do? They deny it. (laughs) He's saying, Edom, you better be careful. He says, I know that you think that you are invincible in this, but your natural advantages mean absolutely nothing for you. For those of you who are not in Christ here today, I realize that things could seem like they're going really well for you. There could be certain markers of success in your own life right now where you're thinking, I am fine. God's not angry. God's okay with me. My business is doing well. My family's doing okay. My health is okay. Friends, be careful. Pride is deceptive, but not only is it deceptive, it is especially disgusting. Did you know that this sin in particular is regularly called out in the Scriptures as the one that God hates the most? Old Testament, New Testament, I don't care where you go on this. I mean, it was pride for which Satan was cast out of heaven. Or maybe you remember this verse from Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to Him. And then what was the seventh thing that He mentions? Haughty eyes. Someone who even looks out at others as if they're prideful. Proverbs 16, 5 says it this way. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And be assured, He will not go unpunished. One more, even in the New Testament, Peter reminds us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride is first an attitude of independence from God. Other places of Scripture describe pride as scoffing and arrogance and foolishness and evil and wickedness. And so many of us here could could easily just kind of dismiss it and say, oh, I'm really struggling with pride. I don't know if you've ever been, even as a Christian, in an accountability group with other people. I see this with young men especially. Uh, The sins that they're often struggling with are things like purity, what they've been looking at, uh, lust. But nobody wants to say that because they think that that's the really bad one. And so they'll just throw up something like, oh yeah, well, I'm just struggling with pride. (laughs) 
because they think it doesn't make them look as bad. Friends, do you understand that when you say that you are struggling with pride, it is worse in God's eyes than the lust? Don't pass that off so easy. God hates it. And what is it that's so especially heinous about pride? C.S. Lewis helps here. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. An anti-God state of mind. It is in direct opposition to God. And friends, the reason why I'm harping on this is because it is what will desensitize you to the coming judgment for all who reject or harm God's people. Now, I'm looking around in the room, and I'm not seeing uh, any Chinese dictators. Uh, I'm not seeing any uh, Islamic imams who are actively trying to heap persecution upon other Christians. Uh, I understand that fact very well. I know that in American culture, uh, we are pretty polite toward one another, even those who would disagree. But Jesus made it very clear in his preaching and teaching that those who are not for me are against me. My question for you is this. Who's your people? Who's your group? With whom do you identify? Is it the people of God, or do you normally see yourself on the outside of that? There's these religious types, and then I kind of do my own personal thing. I've got this mix of religious sensibilities that I'm constantly living out. Friends, for those of you who are not a part of the people of God, the judgment here that is promised includes you as well. I know I have to prove that, and I will, and it'll come up in a few verses to come. But for the moment, I want you to understand that God hates the mistreatment of his people as evidenced by the punishment that he pours out upon it. So we've seen what God feels about bad blood toward his people through the lens of punishment. But now I want you to see another lens. This is the particulars. What exactly is this mistreatment that God is so concerned about? What is this uh, behavior? What does it look like? Well, look at verses 10 to 14. He's going to get really specific on this. And he says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Look at verse 10 again. Do you see it? Why is he so angry? It says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. And now he's going to spell out that violence. The violence includes, in God's eyes, notice verse 11, standing aloof. It isn't just those in Edom who actively participated in the execution of those refugees. It was those who didn't do anything at all. God hates that. He thinks that there should be an active interest in the well-being of his people. And so he's even going to pour out judgment on some of the Edomites because they didn't do anything. And that's why we read, by the way, that story earlier from uh, Luke chapter 10. You remember Jesus is answering the question from the lawyer about, hey, how is one uh, right before God? And Jesus tells him, as he said in many other places, love God and love your neighbor. And then the guy tries to get smart back and says, okay, well, who's my neighbor? And so then he tells the story. And in the particular story, it's rather shocking because those who you think will be the good guys end up being the bad guys. I mean, you've got these, this one guy coming from the temple. You've got another guy who's a Levite. And what do they do with the Samaritan who is struggling? Excuse me, with the individual who's struggling in the ditch? They just ignore him. And what do the Samaritan do? The, the, the bad guy, if you will, in this particular one, racially, they looked at Samaritans as if they were second-class citizens. And so it is the Samaritan of all people who actually invest in the well-being of this other individual. And Jesus says, this is what it looks like to love your neighbor. 
It isn't just when you actively do something to harm him. It is when you are actively doing things to help him. That's what righteousness looks like. And so, in this case, some of them are being excoriated on account of the fact that they stood aloof. They didn't do anything. But notice also in verse 12, what else happened? Now, this is interesting. He's going to switch from past tense language to present tense language. And there's no way around it. In the Hebrew, he does start saying, do not do this, do not do that, as if it's something that hasn't happened yet. But this is a rare thing that happens in Hebrew, where a prophetic author will actually speak in the present tense to underlie the emotional intensity of the moment. Uh, Maybe the best illustration I could give you of what's going on grammatically here is if you've ever been around someone who has experienced post-traumatic stress syndrome. In that particular moment, maybe there is a loud noise for someone who has fought in a war, for example, and all of a sudden they are thrown back into the trauma of that moment and they are yelling for cover. They are speaking in the present tense as if it's actually happening. Whatever's going on in Obadiah's vision here, it is so traumatic for him that he begins crying out in the moment, and I want you to catch the pathos of what's happening. He says, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. It's like he's reliving it. And he's saying, no, you shouldn't have done that. And you shouldn't have done that. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't treat God's people that way. And it involves so much. There's the arrogance in verse 12 of just gloating over one's, the brother, like, oh, look, now here they are, they fell, they have experienced this misfortune. There's those who actually entered in and tried to pillage this particular city. Uh, and there are those who stood at the crossroads and did the most heinous thing in kidnapping or capturing these fugitives. He's saying, no, don't treat God's people this way. And so we see that this is what God has in mind. He here is excoriating any act of hostility against the people of God. Passive or active, God hates the mistreatment of His people. Now friends, I don't know how this strikes you, but you should be assured of something if you're here in Christ today, that God feels this way about you. Without even giving any specific stories, I think that any parent in the room can resonate with that particular concern that comes for looking out for the well-being of your own children. Whether it is someone who has picked on them or the, on the playground or a teacher that you perceive has mistreated them, Uh, We don't use the term mama bear for nothing. (laughs) That feeling of protection of your own. God is saying, this is what I feel for you. You do not treat my people in these ways. He's saying it publicly to the Edomites to remind us of how God actually feels about his children. He will not put up with this type of behavior. And so, friends, I think we do well to be reminded that we enjoy this special promise of protection of God. He hates any mistreatment of His people, whether it be in the 1040 window, China, or the United States of America. But I would also just throw out a little reminder. I want to make this really practical, and this is something that has convicted me greatly. I think sometimes we kind of forget that even we who are the people of God also should be careful not to mistreat the people of God. I think it's a a tendency that I see in my own heart. That's why it's so convicting. I 
I tell this story knowing that things are good and they're fixed now. But I remember a few years ago, Tanya and I were going through a rather tense moment. And, um, and I just had this tendency to kind of come home and, and be, I don't know, for lack of better words, a jerk. I was just always on edge. Um, and I don't, I don't remember the exact circumstances. I just remember what she said, and I don't think I'll ever forget it. <laughs> she, she said, you would never treat the staff the way you treat me. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> How did that happen? How did that happen that uh, these guys that are not actually my blood family get better treatment than my own wife? And I think, friends, that that tendency is within us all. Sometimes we're so focused on the mission and making sure that we're getting done what needs to get done that we forget that the people around us are the people of God too. They deserve God's special protection. We shouldn't stand aloof from them. We shouldn't actively harm them. Sometimes the the, the bitterest pains that we experience come at the hands of those who claim to be God's people. And so I'm reminded, even as I look at this church covenant, that we will read again in a few moments uh, when some new members join our church. We will, this is what we said we would do for one another here at this church, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, walking together in brotherly love, and listen to this, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonishing and correcting one another as occasion may require. One more. We will rejoice at each other's happinesses, and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Friends, we have this obligation to one another, and I would warn you not only against active hostility against others who are in Christ, but also what the text in verse 11 says, aloofness. Knowing that someone is in a moment of duress and just saying, I don't want to mess with that. That hands-off mentality, God hates it. He hates it. He would have us enter into one another's pains to, to bear with tenderness and sympathy each other's sorrows. And so while the mistreatment is certainly applied to those outside of Christ, friends, those of us who are in Christ are not immune either. I do find it fascinating that the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5 all deal with interpersonal relationships. May we be careful that we don't even, on accident, mistreat the people of God who are closest to us. So God disdains bad blood toward His people. We see it through the lens of punishment, We see it through the lens of the particulars, whether it's the aloofness or whether it's active hostility. But I want to finish with this. Notice this last lens by which we look at God's disdain for the mistreatment of His people, and that is the prescription. Prescription. The lens of prescription. What will God prescribe to fix this? How will God ultimately ensure that the people of God will be well cared for Well, he he schedules it with a certain day. When you look at verses 12 to 14, you'll notice something kind of interesting. He keeps mentioning the day, the day, the day. Do you see that? I think it's six different times the word day is used over and over again. And now notice how it leads up to verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Now notice that the day of the Lord. There will come a day in which Yahweh, remember, radically intervenes into the world order and writes that which is wrong. And notice what the author does here. I told you I would prove my point. This isn't just about Edom. This is about all of us. He says, the day of the Lord is near upon whom? All nations. Upon everyone. Upon anyone who mistreats God's people. He has orchestrated and scheduled a particular day to rectify all of that which is wrong. And what will happen on that day? 
It says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Lex talionis. Remember an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? Jesus says, whatever mistreatment you have poured out against my people on that day, I will ensure that you will experience it. It seems right now that when God's people are marginalized or oppressed or persecuted, that they just get away with it. They just get away with it. And what this ensures us is that it's already on the calendar, friends. It is scheduled. God will ensure that the wrongs will be made right. Verse 16 is a powerful metaphor. It says, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. Now Paul's there. The picture is of them winning this military battle over like where the temple was. They considered it to be Mount Zion. He says, if you have drunk on my mountain, you were, you were drinking in celebration to your victory. And he says, here's what's going to happen. You will drink all right, but here's what you're going to drink. You're going to drink the, the, the cup of my white hot wrath. Notice what it continues to say. So shall all the nations drink continually. They shall drink and swallow. And here's what's going to happen. And shall be as though they had never been. It will wipe them out. Notice what happens in verse 17. But here's a contrast. In Mount Zion... There shall be those who escape. There's going to be survivors despite your oppression. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Verse 18, again, another powerful metaphor. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph, a flame. And the house of Esau, stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken. Friends, I want you to understand like, how this came across to that uh, original audience. I mean, Israel has just had their rear ends handed to them. I mean, they were kicked out of their own capital. It seemed as if there was no way that they would ever be able to recover. It seemed that Edom had the upper hand. And right here, Obadiah is saying in the midst of this defeat, nope, it's all going to work out so that you guys are going to be the stubble, Israel's going to be the fire, and they will burn you up. Can you imagine such a foolish thing? And yet I say this especially for those of you who are not Christians here this morning. Hear the power of the prophetic word of the Lord. The Edomites, as God had promised, do not exist. Around 400 B.C., they were wiped out. No one knows of an Edomite. But here we are, almost 3,000 years later, and there's still this place called Israel. What God said would happen, would happen. They would be eliminated. His people, his ethnic people would be preserved. It is a powerful testimony to the reality that this coming day just isn't some random song and dance that Christians sing to kind of rah-rah themselves up from time to time. We're talking facts here. There is a real day on God's calendar in which He will right the wrongs Here's exactly what will happen. It says uh, in, in verse 19, and this is rather confusing and I'm not going to explain it all, but basically I want you to understand what's happening in verses 19 and 20. Uh, Obadiah is envisioning the people of God scattered about, overtaking all the areas in which they had been conquered in times past. It says those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. So God's people, they're going to possess those mountain fortresses of Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They're going to overcome the Philistine enemies. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. In the time of the divided kingdom, so also God's people would again be united and they would rule over all of Israel. Verse 20, the exiles of this host of the people of 
Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. We're talking like the border to the north. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev, what was promised to them in the south. And then look at the first half of verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. God will rule over and through his people as he had originally promised. Yeah, they may have been kicked out of their land. Yes, they may have suffered in that time. But what he's saying is that in this instance, there will come a day in which God's people will get everything that was coming to them. And why will it happen? Because on that day, look at verse 21, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Yahweh will rule directly through his chosen king and bring about the reversal of misfortune that has been the perpetual plague of God's people for thousands of years. Friends, I need to admit that we actually have somewhat of a perception problem. Uh, the, the way that we typically think of, a, um, of, of who's in charge, of who's winning, is it, purely by our sight. Whose flag is flying over the 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 White House, who, who is, uh, whose language is the national language? I mean, you look around and, and we just have these visible and evident things. Whose soldiers are in the street? Who's winning the war? And so we just go by sight and we look around and it doesn't look like God's people are winning. The Christian flag isn't flying over the White House. And the language of the day is certainly English, but it is not God's Word. It is is not the, the legislation of the New Testament, if you will, that is reigning today. I mean, like those who are in power, as was evidenced earlier, are those who could care less about God or His people. And that's the way that it looks now. And the prescription, though, is God having scheduled a day in which he eliminates the opposition and then establishes in power those who have been faithful to him. This deal about bad blood against God's people isn't just something that's going to get gradually worked out over time. It's something that he's going to radically intervene and fix. Maybe you remember from your childhood, uh, the story of the Gordian Knot. It's based in uh, Greek lore, especially that of Alexander the Great. As the story goes, in 333 B.C., that that great Macedonian conqueror comes to the Phrygian capital of Gordium. It's modern-day Turkey. Uh, And as he's there, he encounters this ancient wagon, and uh, the yoke is tied to what one Roman historian later described as several knots all so tightly entangled that it was impossible to see how they were fastened. So it was such a big knot that you couldn't even tell where the thing started. And the Phrygian tradition held that the wagon had once belonged to uh, Gordius, who was the father of the celebrated King Midas. And the oracle declared that any man who could unravel its elaborate knots was destined to be the ruler of all Asia and eventually the world. And so it seemed that no one would ever be able to untangle this knot. And so the story goes down a couple ways, but the one that I find the most interesting is Alexander sticks his head down by the knot and pokes and prods at it for a little while and then removes his sword and just cuts it in two saying that it didn't, the oracle didn't say how the knot had to be untied, but just that it had to be untied. And eventually he would come to rule that part of the ancient world. Friends, I want you to understand that when we look at this world and we see how knotted up it is politically and how it seems that uh, those who truly love Jesus are on the bottom of things and those who truly hate him are on the top of things, it's a tangled mess, but I want you to know the day is coming where Christ will come, cut through that knot, and right all that which is wrong with this world. The ultimate hope of Obadiah is Christ coming to fix that which is broken. This fix, this remedy, 
It started. It started back 2,000 years ago when Christ entered into humanity and paid the penalty for sin and rebellion that you and I all deserved. That punishment for the, the, those who were outside of the people of God, described in those opening verses, that was us, friends. And yet even Jesus would come and take that upon himself, making it possible for those who were at one time distant to God to be brought into relationship with him. And so because of what Christ has accomplished through his shed blood, now those of us who used to be outsiders can be insiders because the sin has been removed, his righteousness has been provided, and he has risen again from the dead, ensuring that all who believe in him will reign with him. He has overcome the greatest enemy, death, so certainly he can overcome any political enemy. And so those who are now in Christ enjoy the benefits of his rule. They have been reconciled to the people of God. And despite the marginalization and the oppression from those on the outside, though we suffer, the text is clear, we will reign. God's promised ruler is coming. And friends, for us in this room today, That means that Obadiah serves for you either as a warning or an encouragement. To whose group do you belong? Are you one of God's people through faith alone in Christ alone? If so, His coming rule is a good thing for you. But if you're just on the outside of things, if you are still distant from Him, you will deserve and experience God's wrath for your rebellion. He will only pour out His blessing on those who are in Christ. That is a warning. And friends, for those of you who are in God's group, you have been united to Christ by faith. I'll give you an encouragement. You may not ever win here. Our names may never be like in the lights, if you will. We, we may never enjoy the prominence and the prestige in this life uh, that those who have decided to reject Christ do enjoy already. And yet a day is coming where God will right that which is wrong. Oh, we sang of it earlier, and it was beautiful. His kingdom shall not fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. Remember that? We're invited to to lift up our head and rejoice knowing that He's coming. He he has with Him the keys of, of, of death and hell and He is in charge and we will one day experience the full and final benefit of all that Christ has come to accomplish. We may be down, but we're not out. We may be marginalized, but things aren't finalized. Christ will reign And his people will reign with him. I should encourage you today. Sure, you'll experience the oppression. You'll experience the persecution. You will experience uh, the marginalization. But you will also experience the reign of Jesus when he comes. And so I'd have us close by acknowledging once more and we'll even do it in song, the brokenness of this world, but the healing and correction that comes in the soon coming reign of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Musicians will come. We'll sing a final song. We'll receive some new members and close the service out. Father, give us hope in your coming reign. Even now, Lord, you... You have delayed your return so that or those who have not yet believed, Lord, can repent and believe. Or you've given them time. You've given them space. Or there are some here who are not in your group. There are some here who will, Lord, if you were to return today, experience your judgment. And I pray that they would be saved today, that they would rely upon Jesus. And for those of us who have already been included, Lord, encourage us and we may be on the bottom of things now. You have promised to make it right in Christ. And so he is worthy of all our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.